Welcome to the Mom Manual. Motherhood doesn't come with instructions, but it should. We are on a mission to highlight ordinary moms doing extraordinary things to build the ultimate mom manual. Every week, I have the distinct honor of speaking with women about the lessons they've learned and the inspiration that got them to where they are today. Join us for a conversation that will spark creativity, provide actionable tips, and celebrate the ordinary and extraordinary moments of motherhood. The Mom Manual starts now. Hi everyone, it's Tara Williams with The Mom Manual. I am so excited to introduce Keely today. She is a pediatric physical therapist who is empowering parents toward purposeful play. Kaylee, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm excited. This is such a fun topic, and I know all the moms and dads listening are definitely going to be super interested in all of these developmental things, because I know as a mom of four, my first time, I was definitely the most nervous, but with all of my kids, I was constantly checking the apps. I was looking at the list that my pediatricians gave me. It was just something I always was very top of mind. Are they developing what normally, right? In quotes, Um, let's jump into your first takeaway. Yeah. So I just feel like I really want parents to know that um, every baby has their own milestone trajectory and that really what you need is to seek out trusted resources for knowing what is normal. So I worry sometimes with these baby tracker apps, I'm not sure where they're always getting those milestone ranges, but I have parents come to me constantly in my account saying, you know, my app says my baby should be doing this and they're not doing it. And to me, sometimes those ranges seem really quick. And so I just want to quickly cover kind of the heavy hitters in that first year, rolling, sitting, crawling, and walking. Those are four of the biggest milestones. Tummy time lays a foundation for all of them. But I think sometimes parents are surprised whenever I tell them, and I do have a free milestone checklist for birth to 24 months that has given lots of parents in my community, specifically peace of mind. And will give your listeners access to that as well, to just feel like okay, it is a range. It truly is a range. If your baby is not meeting it at the beginning of the range, that doesn't mean that there's anything wrong with them or that they're behind. It just means some babies hit it at this month and some babies hit it at this month. And it doesn't say anything about them either way, other than just that's the way they're made. So we're just really using those as a gauge for, do we need to be concerned? And we'll talk about that a little bit later, or are they well within that window of normal? right? So for rolling specifically tummy to back, we can see it anywhere from two to five months of age. And this is probably the number one question I get is babies will roll tummy to back really early and then they'll stop Mm -hmm. and parents panic and they Google and they get answers. They don't want to see that most likely are not even applicable to their baby. But what happens is babies use a reflex really early in life and their head is enormous compared to their body. And so they sort of just arch their back and they roll tummy to back. Well, they didn't do it necessarily intentionally or master the skill in a way that a therapist would say they've mastered it. So when it disappears, it's not that it's disappeared. It's actually a sign of progress in most cases that they're getting stronger. They're building muscle strength on both sides of their body in a way that they sort of have to learn to roll tummy to back the proper way. Yeah. I think I remember my first daughter who did everything really early, but she rolled what you're describing at a week old or something. We're like, Oh my gosh, this is 
amazing. Yeah. You only have yes. to search twice. <laughs> yes. And I'm, I'm not about stealing that joy and telling people, oh, it wasn't a real role. But when they come to me panicked, I'm like, well, it probably wasn't a real role. So yeah, I usually see it as a sign of progress. It's okay. As babies get older, they're also more motivated to stay on their tummy because that's how they get places. That's another thing with the rolling is oh no, well, they were purposely rolling belly to back and now they don't seem interested at all. Well, that's because they're ready developmentally to start trying to crawl. So it's a really exciting time, but one that causes a lot of panic. Right. And then back to belly rolling usually happens anywhere between five and eight months of age. And then sitting is another big one that I think there's a lot of misconceptions surrounding. So sitting truly independently, like where you could put your baby down and walk away doesn't typically happen until between five and eight months. So I think we often feel like that six month milestone photo has to be, we have to show our babies sitting up all by themselves. So I don't know if you felt that way at all, Tara, but it is something that a lot of parents tell me my baby's almost six months and they're not sitting up. It's okay. I think, I don't know if, gosh, I can't even remember now, but I know talking about like a fake role, we had the bumbo seat. And I thought, oh, they can sit now, but again, mm-hmm. we're really sitting, but I think we started putting our kids in that around four months when we mm-hmm. wanted to start feed them solids because there wasn't yeah. really another way for them to keep their head up and, and sit. But yeah, the sitting, I, I do remember the crawling, tell me the crawling and walking milestones. Cause I want to see yeah. if they're right to what I remembered. Yeah. Crawling on hands and knees usually happens between nine and 11 months of age. Some babies do it before that some babies a little bit after, or some will army crawl before that, which usually happens between seven and nine months of age. And that's nothing to worry about either. If they skip army crawling, totally fine. If they do it great, that's all good. And then walking is another big one. I think a lot of people feel like that first birthday at their party, they need to be walking. And I think a lot of family members will ask questions of, Oh, they're one. Are they walking yet? And that perpetuates this pressure, but usually walking happens for most babies independently by themselves, 13 to 15 months. Okay. Yeah. My first daughter walked at about nine months and was super solid walking by probably 10, 11 months, which I know is crazy early. Mm -hmm. My other three kids did not work that early. And I remember distinctly with my second daughter being really, really worried. Like, why isn't she walking? My first daughter also was talking like a full vocabulary at her first birthday. I mean, sentences, everybody's names. And my other kids didn't do that either. So it was, and, and I do remember everybody would see her and say, Oh my gosh, she's so little. And she's saying all this. And I had another friend who actually her daughter was about two weeks younger. So they were almost the same age. And I remember she, and we did everything together and her girls were always together. And she was so worried because she was seeing what my daughter was doing and her daughter was not doing anything. And now, I mean, she's, you know, running and she's doing little marathons and she's eight years old. She's incredible. So yeah, they all definitely developed so differently, but there is so much anxiety. I know that for sure. as a parent. Absolutely. And it's really hard when you're in the trenches to have that hindsight perspective, like you have now with your kids as they're older of shoot, you know, I don't even remember my two-year-old now, like exact times when he had his milestones And really the reason these ranges are there are solely for the purpose of us being able to catch if we need to make a therapy referral, or if there's something more we need to be looking into. And I don't say that in a way to scare parents like, oh, you know, they may not be hitting their milestones. Sometimes they just need a little extra 
nudge, or sometimes there's environmental things we can change. And so that was kind of bringing me to my second point, which is we don't need as much baby equipment as the baby industry would have us believe that we do. What we're seeing is whenever babies used to sleep on their bellies, which we now know is not safe, they were getting hours and hours and hours every day of what we now call tummy time. And so in their sleep, they would press up through their arms and they'd turn their head to one side and turn their head to the other side and they'd wiggle around and they'd get their knees up under them and then they'd stretch out and they'd move. And they had all this time to move on their tummy, which we now have to put in their wake times. But I also think with this increase in working moms outside the home, we're seeing lots more items and big ticket baby equipment things to help babies just be content all day long. And that's great for that purpose specifically, but we are seeing some repercussions developmentally to that if we're also not getting enough floor time. So my just like general throw out there rule is I try to say, If you need to use baby containers, that's what I call them. Like where the baby is contained, totally fine. Try to just get twice as much floor time or twice as much free movement time. So wherever that may be, it doesn't have to be on the floor. They could be in their crib with nothing in there, or even you sitting right next to them, they're awake in their crib or their pack and play with some toys around them because we know we're all busy. Right. But there are, there are a couple that I, as a pediatric PT, I'm like, nope. I can't ever get behind those. And the main one is baby walkers. So the ones that actually you sit your baby in that have the wheels. And there's a couple of reasons for that. Often we're putting babies in them before they're developmentally ready and their hips are not yet mature. So that little sling that they're in can cause some excess pressure at the hips. Another reason is that they learn to lean themselves forward to propel themselves in the walker. And so sometimes they'll be walking on their tippy toes, or when we get them out of the walker, they will try to lean forward like that and then just fall. And then the third thing with baby walkers is that they have access to environments that they wouldn't have appropriate for their age. Meaning if the baby was on the ground where they normally are developmentally, they wouldn't be able to reach the knobs on your stovetop or a hot cup of coffee, they would still be down kind of in a crawling position or maybe pulling to stand and you would be more aware of it. I've also heard stories of babies falling downstairs, which is just so scary. So that's like the number one thing. And the number two thing would be jumpers, babies stinking, love them. And I feel so bad telling parents that I don't love them, but it's sort of like thinking about if we were to run a marathon before we ever even walked a mile, we just have to think about what would that would do to our joints? Like, sure, we could do it and maybe it would feel good or something, you know, those endorphins would kick in, but our joints were not equipped for it yet. So babies joints and bones are growing and they're so malleable. And so we don't want to be putting them in something that they can jump and jump and jump and jump before their body's even ready. We don't expect to see jumping until about two years of age. Right. And so bone, it, it takes time to strengthen bone and that's through walking and running that then leads to jumping. Okay. That is so wait, there's so much you said right now that I'm like, hold on, hold on, hold on. I need to comment on so many things first on the, I never knew this. So before we had the back to sleep is best campaign by the American Academy of Pediatrics, which actually is amazing because it has greatly reduced the risk of SIDS that came out in the nineties was tummy time, not a thing. 
No. No. Okay. So interesting because now as, as a new parent, tummy time is very annoying, right? Because the mm-hmm. baby doesn't want to do it. And then they're crying and then you feel bad because you're laying your baby down and they're like hitting their face and you feel as a mom, like, oh my gosh. And then they just don't want to do it. So I think it's, it's easy to skip that, but that is so, so interesting that it's tied to that going to sleep on the back and then going back to the baby walkers. These sound awful. Like all those things you just said and the jumpers, these sound terrible. And our parents, I actually never had either one of those. I don't know why I just didn't our parents buying them because they it's entertainment for the baby or it's, they think they're helping to develop their baby. Like what, why are parents usually buying these? Well, I think you hit both nails on the head because we want our babies to be happy. We get so much joy from them doing things like you're talking about your daughter rolling over at a week old. Like you're like, oh my gosh, I have this baby prodigy. Like this is amazing. She's rolling over, you know, and I don't ever want to steal that joy, but for the sake of safety, sometimes I have to be willing to say the hard things. And so I do think parents are buying them because they're being marketed to them because it keeps them entertained and happy. And truly the Johnny jumper or the jolly jumper or whatever it is, babies love those things. So if a parent sees another parent and their baby loves it, they're going to think, Oh, my baby would love that too. And they'd get so strong and it would help strengthen their leg muscles. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's so hard because I would never expect a parent to know this. And this is, you know, thinking worst case scenario, right. But truly from a physiological standpoint, thinking about the jumper, these are things that I am trained in my expertise to know about, but parents are not trained in and that's okay. And so really, I feel like our profession as pediatric therapists in general are fighting that battle of all of this marketing money is being spent telling me my baby should be able to do this, or they need this, or if I have this, I'm a good parent, or if I have this, I can get more done at home and trying to replicate what pre-parenthood life looked like when actually I think it's okay that maybe life is going to look a little bit different. We just have to adjust And so one of the things I have loved is baby wearing because I cannot hold my baby all day to keep them content and happy. I cannot get down on the floor with them all day. I cannot constantly be taking them toys. We know babies are not going to be content no matter what amazing foundation we lay for them on the floor or alone all day. And so for me as a busy mom and as a mom who did want some semblance of my former life to still be there especially once you start having two and three and four, where you're running around doing things with the toddler and the older kids, it was a game changer for me. And I talk a lot about this on my page because I also think baby wearing can be really intimidating. And so the biggest hurdle that people have to overcome is just getting comfortable with it. And then once they do, it's like this amazing you know, this is awesome. I I love that I can do this, but it reminds me a little bit of what people say about breastfeeding of, Oh, breastfeeding. So natural. Well, yeah. If you work and work and work and you finally find your groove, it can be beautiful and natural, but same with baby wearing, like it takes some work. I took with our first like a week and I just decided, okay, she had some reflux issues. And so she would not sleep at all. She was really fussy and we had to wait to put her down on her belly after feeds, etc. And so I just took a week and I said, okay, every day I'm going to put this thing on and do it. And it just took that repetition. 
but there's also things to think about from a developmental standpoint with baby wearing and same thing as before there's marketing images coming out that are not appropriate for certain positioning and things like that, that I really feel like I'm kind of trying to educate moms of this can be awesome, but we also want to be mindful. So when we talk about baby wearing, I just want to make sure, is this like a, a sling we're talking about, or are we talking about a baby? I, Cause I, I think I had the ergo one where it's kind of, mm-hmm. yeah, now hip seats are super popular or is it, does that kind of fall all under that? Or are you just talking about the, the sling? Yes. Baby wearing, I would say is an umbrella term for anything that you feel comfortable with. So I educate on wraps. I educate on like the more utility carriers, like an ergo where you click and go slings. I think for toddlers, the little hip carriers can be a great way to just offload some pressure. And the kind of other piece of this, that's really fascinating is getting pelvic health therapists involved because we carried our babies on the inside but that's not the same as carrying them on the outside of our body. And so doing a lot of educating around that too, to feel confident that your body can carry the baby in the carrier and that you're wearing them properly to where you're not injuring yourself further. Yeah. That's, oh my gosh, that's a whole nother thing. Um, I have a friend who started a, a hip seed company because her husband hurt his back from carrying their daughter. Yeah. But yeah, that a whole nother, a whole nother podcast on that. Yes, okay. Yes. So the two bad ones are the baby walkers and the jumpers. And mm-hmm. then a really great option is baby wearing, but there's a whole bunch of other stuff in between. So yep. is, are there other things that you say are good, take it or leave it? Or, I mean, I think of like the play mats and then they have all the fancy, you guys can't see me, but I'm doing an arch, like those fancy arches <laughs> where they look up and they play with the toys. There's beautiful wood ones now that seem like they're more part of the nursery. I mean, is there other things that you recommend in between those two? Absolutely. So, um, I think an activity mat is a great investment because it can be used in many different ways. And so they can lay on their back, they can lay on their belly and you can put toys around them. Um, we really want to get that reaching and batting at toys for vision, for hands to midline, which helps us understand our body for kicking all of those things. I think it is a good investment and it allows them freedom of movement or not restricting them in any way. So I do love activity mats. There's a lot I would recommend, but just in general, something that they've got room to move and explore, but maybe some enticement overhead. You can literally hang whatever you want. I've seen people do like loofah sponges or CDs, the reflective nature of a CD is so cool up there and they love to see that. So ribbons, things like that. It doesn't have to be a big expensive play mat. I do really like a seat called the up seat. I like to always provide a solution if I'm saying we need to take this thing away. So the Bumbo is very, very popular. And I hate always, I always hate calling out a specific brand name, but The bumbo seat babies can sit in very early on because when babies are in our tummies, they're all curled up in a little ball and their spine is very rounded. So that's another thing we were talking about where we get so excited. Our baby can do something and parents buy the bumbo and plop their kids in them very, very early. And they're, Oh, they're sitting up. Well, not really. They're just kind of hanging out and they're not using their muscles at all to activate. And so it actually can kind of limit their development of their spinal curves that are normal. So the up seat was created with therapists input and it has a slight decline in the seat base to where it 
helps the baby sit more upright. And then they also have really nice wide leg holes and openings that protect the hips. They allow the baby to use them much longer. I had really chunky babies and the bumbo, they would have never fit in that or fit in it for like a week. And then they would have outgrown it. So it's a pretty cost-effective as far as comparing the prices. If you compare the bumbo option with the tray to the upsy, and I can maybe give you my discount code to include in the show notes if that's helpful. For sure. People would love that. We'll definitely get that in the show notes. Um, So I think really the takeaway with all the baby gear is it's not going to train your baby. You're not Mm -hmm. going to help them walk faster. I think some other parents, when we talk about early life and specialization, you know, parents who want their kids to be athletes, it's never too early. Let's teach them to Mm -hmm. walk so they can walk first and run first and play soccer. Mm -hmm. But none of the, none of this equipment is going to, your baby is going to develop as they were going to, regardless of the things you put them in and there's no Mm -hmm. training and teaching. Yes. Yeah. Just gently nurturing. And a lot of that is just, they have a love for learning and exploring their environment. So we just give them an opportunity to explore their environment and they are going to take it at their own pace. Yeah. Okay. So I think this leads us really nicely into our third takeaway. Yeah. So with all of this, I just want to reassure parents that they do not have to be their baby's physical therapist, feeding therapist, speech therapist, whatever it may be. So there's lots and lots of accounts like mine in all realms of pediatric development on Instagram now. And it's awesome. It's amazing. It's right where we are already consuming content rather than us having to read a separate book about their development. But I think sometimes that this inadvertently can perpetuate the idea that we have to be able to fix everything. And so a lot of times our accounts are just meant to help give you ideas for play or help you to understand about a subject that you may not have before and feel confident in your parenting journey. But sometimes there is an actual need for intervention. And so your pediatrician or your care provider should be walking you through that. Um, My milestone checklist hopefully will be helpful, but there are some things that I, from a motor standpoint, see as a reason to really push and advocate for a therapy referral. So if you're in the United States, early intervention that's state-based is often free or very, very low cost for a family who qualifies. So that would be kind of step number one, if, and I'll go into these kind of red flags, but if you feel like your baby needs help and just trust your instinct as a parent, it is so strong. That mom instinct is so strong. So I think sometimes we can tell ourselves in our mind, if it's okay, I feel like I'm worried about this, but I think this is me. I think this is just me being worried. And I think I'm going to give it some time. Or if we go to that well visit and we ask how the pediatrician feels, and we feel like our feelings are just put off. Maybe we still have that inkling that we really need to talk to them about getting a referral. Worst case scenario, you go and get evaluated. They tell you your baby's completely fine. And then you're on your way. But I always urge parents to be their baby's advocate because you're going to be the best person to push for that. I have, I am sure you have too, but I've personally heard many stories where parents have brought their kids to the pediatrician. They've said they're fine. And the parent is like, no, there's something off here. Like, I know it, I feel it. Um, And even if that is, I know we don't, you don't want people going on Google because like I said, every time I Google something, I have cancer. Um, yeah. and it's the same thing with babies. It's always the, the most dire uh, diagnosis. 
But I totally, totally agree with that. Like you are the mom, you know, your baby best, you see them day in and day out. And if you have any concerns and if your pediatrician is not listening to you, like find another one for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Sorry. I'm super passionate about that. Yes. No, I think that's such a good point. And I also think just like I cannot be a baby feeding expert, but I know just enough to get myself in trouble. Pediatricians are there to keep our babies healthy and safe. And that is their role. They cannot be a movement expert or a feeding expert or a speech expert or whatever it may be. And so I think sometimes we place those roles on them and there can get this really negative connotation around pediatricians. And truthfully myself, I used to think good grief, you know, why is this pediatrician not referring, et cetera. But now that I've seen hundreds, if not thousands of children, I understand that they probably see a lot of worried parents that there isn't anything wrong, or they see babies who one week aren't doing something. And then the next week they do it. And so that's really where that parent instinct and you knowing your baby best has to come in because they see them for what, 20 30 minutes max, they can't know. And so I think reframing our mindset of sure, there are some pediatricians who, if they don't treat your concerns with respect, you need to find someone who is going to listen to you and hear you out. But if you feel like maybe they were just erring on more of the side of let's just wait and see, it isn't always that they're doing you a disservice, but that's where you have to say, no, I know early intervention is best. And I know my baby needs something. And that's so, so important. Let's kind of go through those red flags, just as a final note of things that a parent might think about, of okay, I'm concerned. Does my baby hit any of these marks? And if so, maybe I need to call my pediatrician and ask for a referral. So number one, if there's more than a two month delay in one skill. So that would be something like if the skill was supposed to happen at the end of the range by eight months, and you're getting close to that 10 month mark, and you're still not seeing it that would be a cause for calling and getting that early intervention referral, because the sooner we get some help, the faster we can close that gap of where they are and where we want them to be. The next one would be more than a month delay in two or more skills. So if you're noticing, okay, they didn't check that one and we're kind of nearing the end of that window and it's, it's past the point they're supposed to do it. And they also didn't check that one. So if you're seeing multiple skills falling behind, get on it. You can even self-refer a lot of times. This is the only time I'll tell you to Google, but you can Google like California pediatric early intervention. And a lot of times you can put in your own information and you don't even need a doctor. And if they need your doctor, they'll call and cross-reference a skill asymmetry that happens for more than a month past achievement of the skill. So that sounds really confusing, but meaning if your baby is reaching and batting at toys, but they're only doing it with their right hand for a month, that's a a reason we would maybe want to talk to a pediatrician about maybe they have some muscle tightness or some weakness, or maybe during birth, they had an injury that we didn't know about and it hurts to move their arm and their shoulder. So that's kind of another thing. Anytime we see a flat spot or a significant asymmetry of head shape, the earlier we can get on that, the better that goes back to our back to sleep campaign. We did not used to see these head shape issues that we're having. And now that babies are sleeping on their backs, they're not stretching their necks out as much as they were on their tummies. They're safe. That is the important thing, but we have to be a little bit more vigilant. And, um, if babies begin sitting up, then we have a very small window to, 
uh, correct that head shape naturally. So that head shape, I, I mean, I see the helmets and they're just the cutest thing ever. Yeah, I know. But is that more of a vanity thing or is there a true reason why people are wearing hats? Yeah, that's a fascinating question. So it's not just vanity. Think about our head in the back. Obviously it's connected to our jawbone, to our nasal structures, our sinus passages, the bones that complete our eye shape. So there is the cosmetic component, but there's also the fact that if we have one side of our head pushed forward, that causes jaw malalignment that can cause one eye to be smaller than the other, which not from a cosmetic standpoint, but truly from a vision standpoint, we can see issues with drainage of the ears, sinus issues, um, with the jaw thinking about chewing, sucking, drinking, speaking, all of those things can be affected. So yes, while the most obvious reason is cosmetic, it can actually cause things down the road. We've heard of cases of children who didn't get it corrected, having TMJ or headaches, things like that, where if we just correct it early on, and usually that helmet is we've done everything we can naturally. And some babies, even parents can do everything right. And they may have actually developed a head flatness or neck tightness in the womb. That is just so hard to counteract that. We just have to use that helmet. Yeah. I think that's actually really great to know because I was under the impression it was just cosmetic. And I thought of it almost more like, um, braces where it's nicer to have straight teeth, but if they're a little crooked, well, that's character. Um, Mm -hmm. that is actually really important for anyone who's listening. Like if you are seeing something like that, this is beyond just, Oh, my, my kid, especially I think for girls, you would think it doesn't matter as much because you have hair covering your head typically, but that is really important to know. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, absolutely. And the other piece of that too, with the flatness is usually that means there's some sort of tightness that we need to address or weakness. Another thing to think about is just a general disinterest in movement. So if you feel like, oh, my baby's just lazy. They never want to move. That's a cause for us to be like, okay, well then we need to have someone come in and figure out what makes them want to move because babies have to move to learn how to explore their environment. And there's so much that ties into movement. So just the simple act of a baby crawling over and opening up a kitchen cabinet and pulling things out. There's so much development happening there cognitively and socially. If they can't do that motor wise, then they're also limiting themselves in those other realms. So we want to get ahead of the game on that. If they're just uninterested. Are, are there just lazy babies? (laughs) Is that a thing? I think there are babies who are less movement motivated, but if they're completely unmotivated to move, that would be like, I'm saying that red flag, but there are for sure ones. Like I used to call my daughter, a talker, not a walker. She was very social. Her brain has always been very social and equipped and engaged in that way. And she was less interested in moving, but she still was interested in moving if that makes sense. So, um, there are babies who are constantly moving on the other end of, end of that spectrum. Um, and, and it's all, you know, normal within a certain realm. Yeah. And so kind of just the last point to look for is extreme tummy time fussiness. That's unchanging. So in my account, I want parents to know that tummy time, their babies don't have to cry. It should be enjoyable. And there's ways to make it enjoyable for both of you 
to where you don't dread doing it every day and they begin to expect it. And it is functional. It teaches them to eventually move on their belly, which is how they get places. But an extreme fussiness where you feel like you are trying all the things you are doing everything you've seen online and they're just unhappy. There's a multitude of reasons that that could be the case, but we want to look into that further before it gets, you know, too far too delayed, et cetera. Yeah. No, these are, these are all really great tips. We were talking for a few minutes before the podcast started. And I said, you know, even with being a mom of four, I was always nervous about autism because it had seemed that if there was any type of delay, that that's what it typically was. And if we're talking about, you know, the first two, um, more than one month delay in two or more skills or more than a two month delay in one skill, is that, I mean, are we saying that is anything specific or could it be a whole host of different things? Yeah, that's a great question. It can be so many different things. It can be something from the worst case scenario to just maybe environment setup and kind of like we were talking about, like maybe they spend their whole day going from car seat to swing to bouncer. And all we have to do is reframe how we're playing with them through the day and they suddenly thrive or, you know, they could be uncomfortable in their clothing and you strip them down and suddenly they're more interested in moving. So it could be personality. Like you said, they could just be a little less interested in movement but that's where we have to bring in the professionals because we don't want to speculate about what could be happening. And most often it's not autism or something super extreme, but we always want to check off all those boxes and make sure. And so usually what happens, unless there's something super obvious, like you had a concern and you went to the pediatrician, they said, Oh yeah, actually, like we think this is what's going on and we're going to do all this testing usually what happens is they'll go to therapy and that therapist is really the person watching them week in and week out. And if they're doing all of the things to educate the parent and help the baby move along and progress is still not happening, that's when they would get referred out to have maybe further diagnostics or an orthopedic evaluation a neurological evaluation. So usually we don't jump from delay to all of a sudden now the baby has some sort of diagnosis. A lot of times it's just, they need a little extra nudge. And that's why we have these early intervention programs is we know there are so many babies who need these services just for a short time from birth to three, where their brain is growing and developing so much. Um, but often they don't have any issues beyond that point. Yeah. And I think it, it's, it, you know, you talked about, you don't have to be your baby's physical therapist. So often we're, we're so worried and we always go as parents and moms to that worst case scenario. And sometimes it's just for the peace of mind, bringing them in, getting them an evaluation. I had a scenario like this with my daughter who was our early talker, early walker, early everything. When she was probably about, she must've just been like just two, cause I was pregnant with our third. And I just felt like she like could sense the change kind of. So I wasn't sure if it was something linked to that but she started stuttering really bad. Like it was so, it was out of nowhere. It was super random. And she would say, she couldn't get a word out almost like mom, the cat like that. And we were like, what? And the first time I heard it, I was like, oh my gosh. And then it just started, it kept happening. And I remember my husband, I had this big trip plan that we had been planning for like a year. And I was like, we shouldn't go. And, you know, cause I, I thought, I don't know. I just went to all these worst case scenarios. Yeah. I think probably autism again, which she's probably too old for that. But so we did bring her into a speech therapist and they met with her twice and they were like, 
she's fine. Like this happens sometimes and it's not a big deal. And, you know, and in probably a few weeks it'll be gone. And so we went on our trip and when we came back, she wasn't stuttering anymore. <laughs> We're like, amazing. Yeah. Yes. But I mean, I, I almost canceled something that was, I was so looking forward to with my husband. And so I, I do think sometimes as moms, we get so worked up and nervous and just to have that really, you know, second opinion from a professional who is trained like yourself is really important. Yes. I could keep talking about this all day because this is something that I, I'm a little bit removed from it now, but I just, even talking about this is bringing me back to the moment of just being so nervous on each of these. Did they roll on time? Did they sit? Did they walk? Now they stuttered. Now they went backwards as moms and, you know, parents, we have so much that is on our plate and we're worrying about, and like, this is, it's, it's a nerve inducing thing. So thank you so much for being here. I want to do our really quick lightning round. Okay. To answer a few questions. Yes. Okay. What are you currently binging on TV? Well, we just finished Ted Lasso. And so we moved on to manifest, um, which has been interesting. We are a couple episodes in and I'm liking it more than I thought I would for sure. But we loved Ted Lasso. I heard Ted Lasso is amazing. I'm not even sure what it's about, but I keep hearing people talk about it. So I'll need to check that one. Yeah. Yeah. Um, What is your, the most recent book you've read? I just read an amazing book actually for moms. I should give the disclaimer that there is a faith-based undertone. However, I think anyone can read this book through their lens of whatever faith or life looks like for them and still apply the principles. It's called When Less Becomes More by Emily Lay, and it is phenomenal. It's been so good for me as a mom coming out of the slowness of the pandemic to really intentionally try to look at what we want our life to look like moving forward, cutting out the things that I can to more fully enjoy the things that matter. It was amazing. I actually just did a book club with some moms in my community through reading it. It was so good. It it attacks everything from just like general busyness to social media usage and really digs more to the root of things versus just, Oh, you know, set timers on your phone or whatever for social media use. It was great. I love that. Okay. That I'm starting that because we all need a little bit of that in our life. Yes. Yes. Um, what is your go-to productivity app? I have a friend who got me onto, I think it's like, it's just something on your phone. It's like reminders. Oh, on the, on the iPhone. Yeah. And it's like so basic. I feel like there's so much mom mental overwhelm. And so constantly my brain is cycling between don't forget to do this. Don't forget to do that. And I write it all down in my planner, but sometimes when you're not near whatever you use to keep all those things housed, you just need to know like, okay, I've got to remember to do this. And it keeps reminding you until you check it off that you've done it. It's so good. I love it. All right. What is your go-to de-stressor? Being outside. I just love to be outside. And I think it's so hard as a mom to feel like we can really carve out time to de-stress. So movement, being outside, being in the sunshine, it's getting really cold here. I'm in the Midwest and I'm getting really sad about it because it's been really rainy, but we try, even when it's cold, if the sun is out, we really try to get outside because we all feel better. I'm a better mom when we're outside. It's built in sensory play, movement play, imaginative play, et cetera, to where I can sort of shut off my brain for a second and just 
soak in the fresh air, move my body. That's probably the biggest one. I love that. That's a lot of people that come on this. It's just going outside, going for a walk. All right, Keely, where can everyone find you? Yeah, you can find me on Instagram at the movement mama and everything on the link in my bio would link to all my courses and things like that. And I know we spoke before the podcast started about my courses. I don't ever want to perpetuate this idea that people have to teach their babies to do skills. But I also think there's a lot of information out there on the internet. And so the courses are more here. It is on a platter. If your baby's in this stage of development, have peace of mind, knowing that you're doing these things through play. It's not therapy-based things. It's just how can I intentionally play with my baby who, you know, is this tiny person that I have no idea what to do with. And know that I am nurturing their development, that I'm connecting with them because I know even as a pediatric therapist with our daughter, I would sit and look at her like, okay, what am I supposed to do with you? Like, what what are we supposed to be doing here? So they're really catered towards that. They're also catered towards helping you feel like you can advocate. If you're concerned about your baby's development, you can kind of take some of the things from the course in and say, you know, they're really struggling with this. They're really struggling with this. They're this much behind in that. And that way you don't feel overwhelmed going in and like, you're going to just be blown off. Like you have actual actionable points and things that you're concerned about. I love that. And I, that's for anyone who's concerned about our third point being your own baby's physical therapist. I think those courses sound great. Yeah. So much for being here today. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. It was fun. I'm